Today at Reader's Corner, Connor Sullivan, author of the new novel Sleeping Bear. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, Connor Sullivan talks with us about his thrilling new novel, Sleeping Bear, picking up on a most interesting and disturbing statistic about Alaskan North Country. He takes the reader on a journey to solve a mystery with geopolitical consequences. Connor Sullivan attended the University of Southern California, where he was the recipient of the Edward W. Moses Award for Creative Writing. Sleeping Bear, his debut novel, won the 2022 Barry Award for Best First Mystery Crime Novel. Connor Sullivan, welcome to Reader's Corner. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, Connor, I'm going to begin uh, in a kind of a strange way. I don't ordinarily do this, but I'm going to begin by reading that little note you give the readers before the novel starts. Since 1988, more than 70,000 missing persons reports have been filed by the Alaska State Troopers. Many of the missing were last seen in and around a gigantic triangular-shaped wilderness above the 60-degree north parallel latitudinal line that forms the raw, unforgiving heart of the massive remote state in America. That, of course, is known as the Alaskan Triangle. Connor, tell us about that. Yeah, so I actually found out about the Alaskan Triangle from an article I read. I think it was in like 2015 or 2016. And for the life of me, I cannot find this article still. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was basically about how many people uh, since 1988 have gone missing in Alaska. And the number, like you just read it, it's just staggering. And from there, I just kind of... I started to do some research on my own and I saw that, you know, they started, I think the Alaska state troopers, um, the Alaska Bureau of investigations, um, they basically started keeping track of this in 1988 until now. Um, so when I read that article, I immediately went, well, there's definitely a thriller somewhere in here. Um, and that's when, you know, the kind of the beginning, the origin of sleeping bear manifested itself. Well, you know, I went down the rabbit hole on this one and, and searched online for stories, and it doesn't take one very long to come up with a number of different tales of missing people or missing planes. Uh, and I mean, you know, there's the once upon a time, there was a majority leader in Congress named Hale Boggs, and he's never been found. Yep. Uh, and, and the plane, the plane he was in. Can we, can we assume here, here comes the tough question, I guess. Can we assume contrary to your novel's plot that all these missing persons, many of whom were not flying in a plane can be attributed only to the rugged, harsh Alaskan wilderness? What do you I mean, think? I think? I think that the majority of people who, you know, have a missing person report filed with the Alaska state troopers, um, I think a lot of them, their disappearances are because of the the rugged terrain that is Alaska. But as I said in the book, you know, it's not necessarily illegal to go missing. A lot of people who, you know, want to just escape society will go up there and just live off the land in the middle of nowhere. And I think there's a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, because of the statistics of how many people have gone missing, there's been a lot of conspiracies um, around that, you know, from UFO abductions, aliens to, you know, secret societies living out there, 
there is, I think, a TV show on Discovery or Nat Geo that dealt with the triangle in Alaska. Um, I've watched it a couple of times, but it's 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 very conspiracy heavy, I would say. Right. Well, not unlike the Bermuda Triangle. In fact, they call this, I guess, Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's named yeah. after that. Yeah. So did you spend much time in Alaska? Hopefully not testing uh, the territory up there, but uh, did you go up there uh, in, in search of uh, what it was like or anything like that? So I have been to Alaska a couple of times. Um, uh-huh. When I was writing the book, I had just graduated college. I was living in L.A., um, trying to make it as a writer and had no money. So I was not able to go up to Alaska um, to fund a research trip. Um, so yeah, no, I, I talked to a lot of friends who are from there who live up there. I talked to Alaska state troopers, uh, village public safety officers, but no, I did not. Um, I was not able to, uh, to go up there, but Google maps was my best friend in that regard. Oh, I guess. Well, that that's, and there's a great, uh, map of uh, the Bering Strait that separates Alaska from Russia that I came across that I thought, oh, well, this is something that really could have happened. Uh, but yeah. I'm going to let let our, our readers figure that one out. Uh, I want to talk about the fact that on the front cover of your book, uh, you have a quote from James Patterson, perhaps the king of thriller novels. Uh, he says, one of the very best thriller, thrillers you'll read this year. And on the, on the back cover, you have similar praise from six very well-known authors. Uh, share with us how that happens. D- does the does the author himself get involved in this, uh, sending an email out to some, or is this a publisher's job? Uh, it's both. Um, both? I had an, yeah, I had an, an in with Mr. Patterson. Um, I was able, I think it was maybe two Christmases ago, I had his address and I just sent him the book kind of on a whim, knowing that, you know, he's a very busy guy. Maybe he takes a couple days off at Christmas. (laughs) And uh, I wrote him a note. I didn't ask for a blurb or anything. I just said, you know, I hope you, it's my debut novel. I hope you enjoy. And then didn't think anything of it. And then about three weeks later or two weeks later, I get this mysterious email, this encrypted email from his (laughs) assistant. And basically, you know, it was him saying, I read your book over Christmas. I read it in one day. I absolutely loved it. Here's, here's a blurb, even though you didn't ask for it. So that was incredibly nice. Wow. That is really cool. Yeah. So Robert Cray gets special credit in your acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. Another great thriller writer. How does Robert Cray come into your life? Uh, So I've known Robert Crace for, oh, I don't know, probably 15-ish years. Um, met him when I was a teenager. He's also a family friend. Um, and uh, we would we would actually go to Greg Hurwitz, who was also a thriller writer. Yeah. We would go to his, I want to say every January, he had a, he'd have a book out. So he'd have a book launch, book party in Los Angeles that I would go to. And I would meet Bob Crace there. I'd see him every year. Um, so he was always kind of a mentor to me as well. So when you were at USC, when you, as you look back on it, can you see how you developed into a mystery or thriller writer? And I'm just wondering, what is different about sitting down and writing a thriller novel than a piece of literature that I'm sure your creative writing instructors at USC uh, wrote often? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that... Well, so I, I got a degree in screenwriting and creative writing at USC. Um, I knew that I always wanted to write um, either screenplays or kind of commercial fiction. 
um, suspense or thriller or whatever. Um, so when I, when I was, when I entered the writing program, I was pretty dead set on that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was also the only one doing that. Um, so (laughs) I think in a program that was very more literary heavy, um, I definitely developed a very thick skin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I am. And then once I was, once I was out of school, I really put my head down and studied the craft. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your uh, screenplay writing experience. And I would think I tried once to write a novel. It didn't work out at all. And where I really stumbled was the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I would think that if you're really experienced in screenwriting, dialogue should come a little easier. Anything to that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was at USC, I was also working at Warner Brothers reading scripts. um, And then the year or two after that, after graduation. So I was reading three scripts a day. um, And I think that was kind of the best schooling I could have had just because I could see, um, you know, you can write a screenplay, you can read a screenplay in about an hour, hour and a half. It takes, you know, a day to read a book, right? So I was able to, I was able to study what story is what dialogue is very quickly from you know many different um screenplays so that was kind of i attribute a lot of my success to being able to read screen as many screenplays as i did so let's get to the novel itself i i always uh allow the the authors uh to s- tell us what this is about because i want to be careful that i don't divulge anything that an author thinks is important for the reader to find out on his own at the very end of the book. Uh, so why don't you set up this novel for us? Yeah. So I, I have a kind of a quick elevator pitch that I always tell people. So it's, it's a, it's a novel about a woman uh, who just experienced a terrible tragedy. Um, she just got out of the armed services and she goes up to Alaska with her dog to kind of just get away from everything. Um, and what ends up happening is that she gets abducted and kind of gets put into this deadly game uh, experiment type thing in Russia. And the book is about her experience there trying to survive and her father who has this kind of shadowy past who has been living in Montana for, on a ranch in Montana for 30 years um, who goes looking for her. And throughout all that kind of his past comes back um, roaring back to him. So, You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Connor Sullivan. We're talking about his debut novel, Sleeping Bear. Now, the Russian part of your book is, I thought, very well done and sounds like uh, an old political science major <laughs> wrote it. I wonder if you could share with us how... How did you get all this information? I mean, did did you have some experience in your undergraduate days of... Uh, of uh, learning about Russian history or politics uh, or you just figured it out when you needed to figure it out. Yeah, it's funny you asked that. I've actually had, had zero schooling <laughs> in Russian politics. I don't, you know, the public school system that I grew up in before I went to uh, USC, I didn't learn anything about Russia. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I must've just missed, missed those uh, weeks of school, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, even at, at USC, I wouldn't, say that I learned anything about Russia. It was just, I, you know, I read a ton of books when I got the idea for sleeping bear. I knew that I had to really um, educate myself in, you know, trying to make this seem legitimate as possible. So I just read a ton of books. I did a ton of research and then came up with the characters and made sure everything was historically accurate. Do you think it's, do you think that uh, it's, it's difficult when it, when it comes to incorporating the real with the fiction 
um, that you have to be somewhat careful, I suppose, that uh, you're not um, you're not misrepresenting what really happened or what really is. Yeah, I mean, I try to kind of walk that line of you know fact and fiction, but at the end of the day, you know, I am I am writing fiction, so. I, you know, I think I have a little bit of leeway there as long as I can get kind of the historical things pretty accurate um, and show the readers that, you know, I did do my research. Um, they, I can kind of get away with the stuff that I make up uh, within the story. I noticed in your book, the Russian SVR Vimples program. Mm-hmm. There, There is some truth behind that, is there not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Tell us about that. So... I, when I was doing research for the group, um, I have a lot of family friends, um, who I grew up around who were in like naval special warfare, central intelligence agency. So they, they know a lot about that. And they were telling me about, you know, the Vimples and, uh, how Russia has these kind of, uh, these, these elite units in the Spesnats. Um, and they told me about Wagner group, which I did not put in the novel, I don't think, um, which is kind of like Russia's mercenary side um so yeah i did a ton of research on them there's not much about them because they are such a clandestine force but yeah um vladimir putin uses them pretty extensively i suppose they're like contractors that uh the cia uses in the united states sometimes to disassociate themselves from whatever these guys are going to do yeah wagner group is that vimples i think are more um svr type government fighters yeah now there's a guy who has two names in your novel, Jim Gale and Robert Gaines. Uh that guy is the father of Cassie, the woman you mentioned, and uh he's former CIA. Uh that too is kind of yanked from the headlines during the Reagan administration. Uh you quote a National Security Directive 138 or you mention it regarding preemptive neutralization. H- how does this work into your novel? Or what is it? Let's start with the basics, I guess. (laughs) So this is funny you asked that. So, you know, I wrote this probably three or four years ago. I have to really think about it. But from what I remember, that was Reagan and his National Security Council's directive uh, for preemptive neutralization, which is essentially an assassination program. Um, They were doing it kind of all over. They, They were doing it in South America. They were doing it, you know, in probably in Europe and uh, Moscow and all over the place. But i from what I remember, that was Reagan's, um, kind of hidden hand, how he could, how he could stop things before, you know, they really occurred on a kind of a global scale. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is again, I re- went down the rabbit hole. So I started looking at all these for all these different things that wasn't declassified until the Obama administration. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah. So there's I, no, there, I must have just. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you really hit on something there, Connor. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's great. So you have, you, we've talked about your, your interesting background as far as, uh, reading screenplays is concerned. Um, you were also in a creative writing program at USC. Uh, w- tell us about how creative writing programs prepare young writers like you for what you've just pulled off. You know, I, I think. I think about that a lot. I I think that in the respect that they give you deadlines and you're able to sit in a room with people and you get your work critiqued. I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, I would say that after I graduated, you know, 
I, I realized, you know, I was like, oh, I want to write books. I've only really written short stories in school. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, but by having those deadlines in school, um, by having your work examined so thoroughly over the years in school, I think it kind of gave me, it showed me like kind of what it took, you know, the big mountain to climb to finish a novel, you know? So yeah, it was, but again, I think a lot of my, um, my success is attributed to just the hard work after school, Mm -hmm. but you know, the program definitely helped. So the one thing that uh, we haven't mentioned yet is uh, an insider approach to writing. Uh, That is insider as far as your family is concerned, because you have a father who is an acclaimed thriller novelist, Mark Sullivan. Uh, How does that work in a, in a family? You must've been able to learn something from your father. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he definitely helped me, you know, he never helped me with the writing aspect of it. It's all, it was all the mental aspect, you know, writing a book is so hard. It's so solitary. Um, he was kind of like a cheerleader, you know, he, he really picked me up, you know, when I was down trying to write my debut novel and then, you know, my second novel, and now I'm working on my third and it's just, you know, it's a process you go through and, you know, he's written, I don't know, 35, published 35 novels in his life. So he's done this a time or two. So he's definitely able to give me that, you know, that sage advice when I need it. And it's been amazing. You are not the first author I've interviewed that has talked about the solitary life. And I think it's something most folks who visit a bookstore and pick up a couple of books never really think about. Uh, I, I think about it because here we are, I'm interviewing you on Zoom and I'm looking at you in a closed door room uh, where you do your writing. And uh, it becomes abundantly clear to me that you're not hanging around with a with a crowd uh, socializing in some way or another. Uh, you said it took you five years to read this book. Is one of the reasons for that that uh, an author does have to socialize to keep uh, life straight and normal? Oh, yeah. Um yeah, I mean, it took me five years to write the book. I spent a lot of time in my office, <laughs> you know, um, I'm a very extroverted person, which is kind of a strange thing for writers. I feel like I've only met a couple other extroverted <laughs> authors, um, right. but yeah, I mean, I have to put myself in a very strict schedule when I'm writing. I write a lot, you know, at least four hours a day, at least that's the bare minimum um, uh-huh. every, every day. And I did that for five years to try to figure out how to write, to figure out what to write. And then, um, yeah, so I it, it is a very secluded uh, profession, um, and I make sure to when I'm not writing to be as extroverted and talkative as possible. <laughs> well, I, I noticed you said in the acknowledgments that you, yeah, it took you five years, but it, you could have shaved two years off of that if it wasn't for Arlo. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're a real dog friendly state here in Idaho. Why yeah. don't you tell us about Arlo? <laughs> so. My wife and I, we got Arlo, uh, our English setter, um, right right after college. And while she would be at work, I would be at home with Arlo trying to write. Um, <laughs> as a puppy, Arlo had so much energy and just he needed like 10 walks a day. And it was just crazy. And yeah, I always would joke that this book would have been done years before if it wasn't for Arlo. <laughs> <laughs> and Arlo has a partner now, doesn't he? Yep. Yep. Yeah. He has uh, Matilda, who yeah. I always, you know, my whole life, I wanted a uh, a St. Bernard. 
And I always said that, you know, if I ever get published one day, I'm going to buy a St. Bernard. And that's what I did. So and she's, almost, she's almost three now. So. Yeah. So you mentioned your second and your third novels. Could we talk about those just for a second? One of my questions was going to be, mm-hmm. um, are, are, you, are you now on a plan to be a thriller novelist like your dad? And uh sounds to me like you must be. Are these next two novels in progress now or are they out there? I'm sorry I haven't seen the second one. I assume the third one may be one you're working on right now. Yep. So the second one is uh it's called Wolf Trap and it comes out March 14th, 2023. Oh. Uh-huh. Um yep, and uh that is a that is the beginning hopefully of a of a series. Um and I'm writing the sequel to Wolf Trap right now. I see. My third book, yep. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Connor Sullivan, author of the new novel Sleeping Bear. In the book, a former Army veteran seeking solitude in the Alaskan wilderness finds herself a pawn in a deadly game with Russia. So these four hours a day, do you uh, start early in the morning and just get them out of the way, or do you break it up? I I wouldn't think breaking it up would be as easy as just sitting there for the full four. Um, yeah, when I, I say, I would say that when I get into a full routine, I get up early and I'll do four hours in the morning. Um, and that means no internet, no phone, you know, nothing to distract me. And then I'll take a break around noon. Um, I'll eat lunch and if it's the summer, I'll go, you know, do something outside, whether that's taking the dogs for a walk or, you know, shooting my bow or going on a hike or something outdoors. And then at around two to two 30, I'll go back in for another probably three hours, four hours. Now, if it's on a deadline, I will be probably working all day <laughs> from right. you know, waking up to going to sleep, which can yeah. sometimes be 16 hour days, but I try not to do that unless I really have to. Yeah. So once you finish that draft, it goes off to an editor in the publishing house. Mm-hmm. T- tell us what happens then. I don't think most readers ever stop and think about the process of writing beyond the fact that you sit down and put pen to paper. But then there's a rather uh, lengthy process of of getting this thing in the shape that you and the publisher are mm-hmm. comfortable with. How does that work? Yeah, so in the in the thriller world, publishers Publishing houses usually want a book a year. They always say you have your whole life to write your first book and then a year to write your second. And that's what, uh, <laughs> and it, it was, it's very true. And it's, it's a crazy, very, very stressful, crazy experience. Um, I was able to do it. I was able to write Wolf Trap in a year. Um, so basically what happens next is I send in my, you know, final draft that I, you know, think is my final draft to my editor. Um, I have an amazing editor, Emily Bessler at Emily, Emily Bessler books. Um, it's an imprint at Simon and Schuster and she's had some of the biggest names in the genre. She discovered Vince Flynn, Brad Thor, Jack Carr, Chris Howdy. Um, so she's huge. So what, what, what she'll do is she'll go through the manuscript and she'll do what are called developmental edits. So she'll go, you know, expand this, explain this better. Maybe this chapter should be over here. Maybe this character, would this character really be saying this? Things like that. And then she'll send it back to me and I, and I'll usually have a, about a month or a little bit more. She gave me a lot more, um, to do the edit changes that she wanted. Then it goes back to her again. She looks at it again. She'll sign off on it. And then the manuscript will be sent to a, um, copy editor who does, you know, the line by line 
um, grammatical stuff, spelling errors, sentence structure. Um, and you know, it's, it's incredible what a copy editor can do. I'll have, it'll, you know, I've looked at every page a thousand times and my copy editor, she'll have 20 markups on it. Things I've never <laughs> seen, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then from there, the manuscript goes into production. Um, and that's when, you know, the artwork starts going into it. The, you know, multiple more people will look at it. It'll get kind of into this like PDF. And then from there, I'll have three more times to look at it. And then eventually it'll get a release date and come out. Now, how long is the process whereby uh, your editor gives you the suggestions on what should go where or what might work better here than there? Uh, that goes back to you. Is that another rather lengthy process or can you knock that off in a in a matter of weeks? Yeah, weeks, months. Weeks. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty quick. That's really cool. So this next question, I, I, I'm always curious about a review where the reviewer refers to the literary novel. This is a literary novel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, here we are today talking about the thriller genre. And uh, I've read, like I might have mentioned to you before we went on the air, I, I read Chris Pavoni. Uh, his novel, Two Nights in Lisbon, and had him on the show just a few weeks ago. And uh, I thought it was a very well-written novel. And I read yours, and it's a very well-written novel, uh, aside from the fact that it's also a lot of fun to read because it is such a thriller. Uh, but I'm I'm just curious about what that means. I mean, I don't understand why we have this uh, literary before certain novels and not others uh, who makes those decisions for one thing? That's what really is kind of weird. I don't think there's any one. Per- it's not like there's a committee that decides what a reviewer gets to call a literary novel. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm just <laughs> as confused as you are. <laughs> I, I, uh, no, I mean, there's, you know, literary is uh, kind of the, you know, they view themselves more as the the esteemed um, higher education type genre. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've read a lot of, you know, quote unquote literary novels. I've, you know, liked some, I haven't liked some, I, you know, I just found, I just liked writing thrillers, you know, I, yeah. airport novels just always, I, I don't know. I just love, you know, blowing through a big thriller. So. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the academic side of it. The fact is that a lot of those literary novels do come from people who are doubling as creative writing professors, right? I mean, yes. that's how they're making their living. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's as legitimate as the kind of writing you're doing. But sometimes I think it's overblown in trying to distinguish quality, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd agree with that. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Uh, Connor, I, again, I want to make sure our listeners understand that uh, this is just a, a great read. And there's also some thinking in in your novel about, as I said in the intro, the geopolitical angle to this. As a matter of fact, it may even be more interesting in, in light of the fact that we know now way more about uh, Vladimir Putin based on what he's done in the Ukraine uh, than we did three or four years ago. And as I'm reading, as I picked up your novel and I'm reading about the Russian angle to this book, I'm thinking, boy, this is 
relevant. This this is uh, th- this this guy. What we know about Putin now, actually, he's capable of doing something like you find in Connor's novel. <laughs> Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had uh, the, the people who are my family friends who, you know, helped me with the research of this book, who had these jobs where they were dealing with the Russians, you know, for their whole career. Yeah. I mean, they were telling me years ago that Putin was going to invade Ukraine, and I just didn't yeah. believe them. They they were yeah. like, oh, he's going to definitely do it, and I just kind of blew that off. Um, yeah. You know, that Putin is capable of a lot of horrible, horrible things, and I think we're seeing that, you know, unfortunately yeah. happen right now. Yeah. And some of the horrible things that are in your novel are very plausible based on what we know now. And again, that's why I so much appreciated uh, reading it. I've always said that in, in as far as I'm concerned as a reader, uh, I, I, I love a good thriller, but I want to learn something too. And yeah. I think I did that uh, with your novel. Well, so thank you for that. Thank you for writing the novel. Thanks for being with us today at Reader's Corner. And we definitely look forward to Wolf Trap next spring and whatever follows. And we wish you well in your career. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Connor Sullivan, thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Again, we've been talking about Sleeping Bear, a thriller by Connor Sullivan. His next novel, Wolf Trap, comes out on March 14th. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.